being able to bring you know things that I've been taught in my in the restaurant career into into a butcher shop and teach that to to butchers that have been 20 30 years in the industry and haven't seen that and then you know when they appreciate that it's 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 really you know satisfying so that's been a great thing this is the crackling i'm anthony huckstep After 15 years working as a chef in some of the best kitchens in the world, Michael Robinson knew what was required to cook the best meat and create the best charcuterie. So in 2016, he took over a butchery with a long history and embarked on a new food journey. Michael, what was it like switching from chef to butcher? Uh, For me, it was pretty similar in comparison because I'd always worked... Or on the meat section in in the kitchens, um, so for me it was almost like being in a in a restaurant or a production kitchen environment, um, just without the uh, the actual sit down dinner service. Take us back to that time when you decided that making that transition was something that you wanted to do. Uh, well, that sort of came just out of the blue. Um, I was working in a restaurant up here in the Hunter, uh, and then. Somebody came actually to to see if I'd potentially be interested in in purchasing vegetables for the restaurant, um, but I sort of explained to him that I had handed in my notice and was looking at uh, moving on to something new. Uh, and he sort of said, "Oh well, I've got a few things happening in Brangston. Um, would you be interested in in doing something?" And then we sort of toyed with a few ideas of of what we could do here, and then we found out the butcher shop was available. Um, so it just sort of eventuated from from nothing, and here we are six years later. Well, what were the challenges in the early days for you transitioning and taking over? It was what was it like? Um, challenges were, I guess, trying to get the local crowd sort of understanding what we were trying to do. We were very cautious, I guess, of um, sort of changing everything straight up. Um, when I first took over the shop, it was obviously very different to what it is now. Um, the offering was was quite basic, and you know, as you'd expect from a sort of a, a quite quiet country town. Um, but as the area has grown and over time, we sort of really adapted that to to include a lot more of your high end, you know, products that we would be seeing in restaurants and whatnot. Um, and yeah, you know, working with a lot of local farmers that we've developed the relationships over over the five six years, um, and sort of introducing that. Uh, but it, yeah, it sort of really worked well for us in that sense. The main challenges, I guess, have been staffing. I guess, obviously, as what we have, as with most people, most people these days, is is staff just seem to be a challenge, full stop for everybody. Unfortunately, <laughs> tell us a little bit of, about the history of of the butchery that you did take over, and uh, and I want to explore what the changes are that you've made. Yeah, of course. So um, it's been a butcher shop. Uh, since 1937, when it was built, uh, it was built by a man named Hung- uh, Claude Hungerford, uh, who he was obviously the first one to have it, and then he, there was three generations of Hungerfords in it after him, uh, and then it was sold to another family up here, who's also got sort of three generations of butchers as well, and that's who we bought the shop from. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's been. Well, it's 1937, whatever it is now. So it's a heritage-listed building. It's always been a butchery, smokehouse, um, and it's always had like a, a 
a big sort of role in this in this little town of Brankston has been you know being a small town it's been a you know a local shop that you know people and families have grown up with and so for us to sort of come in and can, like keep the tradition of that going was was a big thing that I wanted to do and also um, you know it's important for the town as well I think that we don't sort of lose that that history that it had um, but in terms of the offering and stuff of, of you know the changes that we've made that yeah it was it was mainly you know it was a lot just sort of introducing new lines that I guess a lot of people hadn't really heard of. And, you know, if we had have come in five or six years ago with some cured meats and stuff like that, I, I don't think a lot of the customers would have really understood what it was. Um, but, yeah, they've, they've sort of really grown to it and, and taken to it quite well. You mentioned the importance of connecting with local farmers. Do you have any stories of the the pig farmers that you connect with and and what sort of product they're creating for you? Yeah, of course. So the pig farmers, we um, we've sort of had a few over the, over the time. Um, the pigs have sort of been a an easier one to find the consistent supplier of up here. Um, we do get uh, free range pigs as sort of our our basic level of pigs that we're getting from Melanda Park, um, but we also use for our Berkshires and the heritage breeds we get from Near River now, um, who we've been working with Andrew for, for quite some time. Um, we were using also Extraordinary Pork, Michael Extraordinary Pork up in uh, up near Dubbo, but unfortunately they ceased their pig farming operation late last year, which was very heartbreaking. Um, but then we've also got another fella who we do a lot of work with. Um, he's actually a doctor, but he has a fully sort of regenerative farming operation out in Woodville. Um, so he does a lot of pigs for us, uh, Angus and some Muscovy ducks and stuff as well. So, yeah, we've sort of been working with him for three or four years now. Um, and, yeah, he's a very, very passionate sort of, I guess, hobby farmer, I guess, as such, because it's not his main main income. But he's very, very passionate about what he does and he's been very great to work with because he's you know really interested in trying new things and growing things how we want to you know have them for the shop and yeah he's been he's been great to work with you're dealing with different farmers and different breeds of pigs what what are you looking for from a from a pig for for what you want to offer the market um depending on the so if it's for our the the butcher shop we'll be looking for if, if the heritage breed we sort of always try for the pasture raised um Fat content, good fat content, but we have to be careful because because we're not cooking it, it does sort of become a, you know, it's a different thing. If you get it in the kitchen, you can render it down or, or treat that fat appropriately, whereas the average customer that comes in, they just see a lot of fat and think, no, I don't want to want to pay that. So it's, it's, it's about finding that sort of happy medium on, on that front, um, but also having the story behind it of where we know where it's grown from, um, you know, who grew it, what it was fed, et cetera, et cetera. And using the whole animal obviously is a, is, is a really big thing uh in the shop but for the charcuterie side of it it's sort of the opposite we want it to be older we want it to be a lot fattier we want it to be much bigger uh but we still also obviously want it to be pasteurized if possible um know where it's come from and it's been looked after generally what we do with those is we have been getting a lot of sow so retired sows from those those farms that we mentioned before um so when they sort of retire out finish their their journey on the farm then we can you know really take advantage of, of that product then i want to explore what you're doing with um, mr charcuterie and all the stuff that you're making um making there but 
you had a career as a chef prior to this. Take, take us back to when you were young. What, what sort of role did food play in, in your family? Um, if I'm honest, I didn't come from a, a family where, you know, it was a big Sunday roast thing or something like that. It, it was Food was just what we ate sort of thing. You know what I mean? It wasn't, we weren't a, a massive foodie family. So to, to get a, or have a career in food is sort of a bit ironic, I guess. I sort of fell into that as well. But um, we, my stepfather was Argentinian, so it was always actually beef and, and he, he didn't eat chicken. So everything, everything was just red meat, red meat, red meat. So we, <laughs> we ate a lot of red meat as a kid um, and no fish and nothing like that. So I guess that sort of shaped my career in I've always wanted to be in, in, in the meat side of it, in the, even in the kitchens and what. So, yeah, I mean, we didn't really come from you – know, obviously, we had our traditional family, Nan's spaghetti bolognese and, you know, all that sort of the classic dishes that every family has. But I wouldn't say that we were a, a huge foodie family, I guess, until later in life. Now we sort of do a lot more with food. You, you mentioned that you kind of fell into the hospitality industry. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, so after school, I guess uh, I went through to year 12 and then we, um, I just didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do and um, was looking for work and uh, started a job in a wood-fired pizza kitchen um, and ended up in their production kitchen. So that was sort of a really interesting thing to see, you know, mass mass volumes of, of production getting pumped out and, you know, it was all very new and you know, when you're the young kid in there amongst some older guys, it gets a bit exciting and, you know, you sort of just fall into it and, I don't know, for lack of a better word, you get trapped and sort of you just – you don't think of anything else. You sort of see what's there. And so that was sort of that first introduction to it. And then we moved into the restaurant, Woodfire Pizzas, um, and then that was the sort of the excitement of the service and everything. And that was like, wow, you know, it was a whole – whole new new thing and just exciting i sort of thought well you know i really enjoy this and meeting lots of great people and yeah i just sort of thought well why not i could see if i could do something with this and yeah then decided to to move out of that sort of fast foody sort of vibe and move into something a bit more more serious and see what we could learn about food and meat and stuff in particular what was that first sort of serious kitchen um, that you stepped into? And do you have any stories of, of what that was like? Yeah, so I, I guess I, I started um, – it wasn't a serious kitchen, but I started at Star City just um, early on and I met a pastry chef there who I then went – he sort of said, you need to go and work in some, some more serious restaurants. And I sort of – his wife was also a pastry chef and we I ended up at um, – Cafe Sydney for a little while, um, and that was big volume and actually cooking on the grill, and I, that's where I first learnt to cook meat. Um, and then I actually had well, I, that's where I met Monty Kaludrovic actually, and we, he told the head chef at the time that I um, wanted to learn how to cook on the wok. So I didn't know this, but apparently that's what I said, and I ended up spending six months cooking on the wok section. So that was quite interesting. It was a bit of a stitch up from Monty, but that's um, that was all fun. Um, and then from there, so his, the pastry, pastry chef moved to Bathers uh, and I moved with her to Bathers Pavilion. Um, and then that was sort of my first introduction to, you know, French fine dining, real, real sort of serious food, people doing it for a career. Um, and then... Uh, I just sort of 
was taken aback and I guess blown away. You know, I was still quite young. Um, I was like, wow, this is this is definitely where it's at. You know, if I was going to be putting the effort and the time into, you know, cooking food, I wanted to be doing it at, at, at quite a high level. So that was yeah, back in 2000, I think that was when I started. So I was still, you know, quite high in the scale of the food scene at the time. Um, but yeah, that was certainly a shock to go from <laughs> from somewhere that was quite casual to to there. I was like, wow, we're like getting paid to pick time leaves and stuff like that. It was it was a bit um bit of a change, but it was a great learning curve. What were some of the the venues that really sort of helped sort of carve your career and take you overseas eventually um, as a chef? So from Bathers, I went to to London, um, and again I ended up working with Monty because he was over there at the time um, and we ended up working together there for another year, I think it was, um, at La Trompette. Um, that was a great learning curve, but I think if if anything, I sort of learnt, if I had to choose one venue where I, I really sort of learnt how to treat food and, and cook properly, I would, I would have to say that was my time at the CAS because, you know, when I was in London, it was... It was great, and it was, but it was still, you know, it was a bit. I was overseas. It was fun. It was a bit party time sort of stuff. But um, you know, still serious about work and whatnot. But yeah, when I came back from the US, I then ended up working with Monty again. So it was the third time with Monty, third, three three times a charm. Um, and then yeah, that was with Justin and James Metcalf and and all that, obviously. So that was that was a real eye opener. And I was only meant to be there for for six months and I ended up being there for nearly six years. So it was um, certainly a huge part of my career. Um, and, yeah, I, I think a lot of what I know today is, is you know, due to my time there. Justin North and Picasso was known for using different parts of the same beast and featuring them on, on a plate. Um, do you have any stories of, of a pork dish where the sort of whole beast was celebrated? Um, whole beast, we used to do a lot of suckling pigs, I guess, when there was that time where that was the, a huge thing. Everybody sort of seemed to be using suckling. So we used to just sort of play with, with those a lot in sort of different ways. And, you know, we tried slow cooking the whole things, balancing the whole things or, you know, doing little different assiettes, I guess, as you, as, as you do. Um, but probably the standout pork dish that I remember from there was a, um, a really, really simple one. I think it was just on the lunch menu. It was a just a curabit of pork rump uh, with a sauce, chicoutier and pom puree. Like it was just something so simple. Um, but yeah, that quality of the pork and it was really, you know, really stood out and just yeah, it was really, really fantastic dish. But just so simple. You know, you could spend so so much time trying to do something intricate with the little suckling pig and you know have your little French cutlets and whatnot. But yeah, it's still. The one that stood out was just the rump on a plate. So, <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that you uh, were working in the Hunter at the time of switching over to butchery. You were what? What drove you to to be in that region? Uh, family. So I moved up here. Well, obviously after um, Bacass unfortunately fell apart uh, in the new complex over at Westfield. Um, I was actually the, the head chef of Quarter Twenty One at that time, but. Uh, that was a really, really tough time, and I think I just needed a, a change personally um, for for many reasons. But I had family up here. My mum had moved up here or to Newcastle for to be closer to her mother, my grandmother. Um, 
so that sort of just made me explore a few different options and um, I had a call about a, an opening of a restaurant up here and I thought, why not? I needed to get out of out of Sydney and, and try something different. Um, but, yeah, it was still sort of I, was, I didn't know whether I was going to stay in Australia or go back to London or, or what, but it, um, you know, I just ended up coming up here and I've yeah, been here since. You've uh, now doing some amazing charcuterie. Tell us, tell us about when that all started and some of the challenges and hurdles of getting that right. Um, so that sort of started, I guess, from my time at Bacasse. And um, I was on the meat section at Bacasse. I started on the meat section and sort of ended up doing about three or four years straight on there. Um, and Justin at the time was doing a lot of whole animal sort of stuff. So, you know, it was it was easy to use up your, your primal cuts and, and whatnot. But, you know, we had use for, for pork mince and stuff in, in terrines and whatnot. But then there was sort of these other muscles that, I mean, at the time in that style of restaurant, we couldn't really, you know, in hindsight we could have, but we probably couldn't really put them on the plate back in that, in that time. They were a bit sort of underused. Um, so we just always ended up with all these extra cuts that, that we had to use up and I just sort of started playing with them and curing and, and whatnot and it sort of just became a thing that I did and just sort of self-taught and, you know, obviously there was some guidance from other people but, yeah, I mean, it's something that I've just always played with. I've been fascinated by it, the fact that you can essentially, you know, I used to say back in the day that it was amazing that you could leave something to essentially rot and then it becomes better and you could sell it for even more money. So it was... <laughs> I guess it sort of stemmed from that fascination. Like, obviously, it's not rotting. I know that, but um, yeah, at the time it was just fun, new, and yeah, just sort of. I started doing a few basic things, and then just wanted to try more and more. And yeah, it was fortunate that that Justin was, you know, willing to let me play with with that produce and and sort of learn it all from there. Do you remember your first real success in the art of charcuterie? Um. I'd say probably for curing meats, it would be a brazola, a waggy brazola. It's not pork, I know, but it, it was a waggy brazola, and it's still the recipe that I use, very, very similar recipe to what I use to this day. Um, so it's it was a winner, I thought at the time, and everybody else seemed to like it. I don't know if they were just saying that, but um, <laughs> it seemed to it seemed to work all right, and it, we still use it now. So it's. That was probably my first success. And then, then I sort of moved on to terrines and stuff. But Justin was always very, very good at terrines. So I guess I sort of felt I had to do something good with those. Otherwise, it was uh, sort of going to be frowned upon. So it was, uh, yeah, that was always the, the pressure test, I guess, the terrines and stuff. Take us through some of the range that you have with Mr. Charcuterie, um, utilising different bits of, bits of the pig. Yeah, so we do... In our standard range, we sort of do um, – we use sows as well. So we use the, the copper um, from the neck, obviously. Um, we use the lonza or the loin. We do a lomo. We cure the fillets. Uh, we do calatello. Um, what else we do? Sometimes we do whole leg prosciuttos. Sort of depends on what's available. We, we do have, obviously, our standard range that we sort of do for more of our wholesale – side of that but um when we do get a you know a whole pig or something like that that we can't like for example last last delivery we had a, a pig that was a little bit too fatty for the, the restaurant so we just you know 
cut up the whole thing into different cuts and, and try different cures, and that's sort of how we experiment nowadays with it, I guess. Um, rather than say, no, we don't want it, we can't use it, it's too fatty. It gives us that that opportunity to still work with the farmers and you know use up those animals that are a bit fattier or or whatnot. So yeah, using pretty much well, we use all the pig. Obviously, we're making pancetta and stuff from the bellies and. Um, I think that's the, the jowls and stuff. We do a bit of jowl bacon. Um, but, yeah, they all, otherwise I'll go into um, any, like, we do like a pad on croot, which is, you know, sort of varies the, of what we've got to put the, you know, there's no set recipe for that. We just change it up as we go, depending on what's available. What's um, one of the lines that you make that you you really enjoy making? And can you take us through the process of, of what it takes to make Um. I would say at the moment I do really enjoy making the pad on croots. It's something that we sort of only just started doing uh, in the last sort of year or so. Um, that's for the, like, the Mr. Shakuri side. And the other thing that we've really been developing a lot at the moment is, is our bacon and hams. So we've been fortunate enough where we've sort of been able to set up a wholesale uh, supply for you know wholesale uh, for bacon and uh, ham, so boneless ham. So I guess that because we still do it all by hand. So having it um, you know, hand tied, like bone the, boning out the legs, hand tying them, injecting them with the brine and curing them, and then the smoking process. So taking it through that whole process, and then when you you know it's cooked, it's cooled down. Having that first cut in it and. You know, the little things like making sure you haven't got any brown spots where you've missed the cure or, you know, it's tied nice and tightly. I think that's quite, you know, it's that sense of achievement, I guess, when you when you do that. So that's always a, a pleasurable thing to do these days. And also teaching the young, teaching the younger guys, sorry, um, how to, to do those and have the appreciation of that as well. What makes a great um, bacon and a great um, leg bone-in sort of ham? Um. For me, it's definitely the smoke. I like it to be quite smoky. Um, we do a sort of a double or if not a triple smoke on most of our products. Um, and then certainly a slow cook. I mean, it, it, it needs to be sort of slow and gentle, but not drying it out, I guess, is a huge thing. Um, but then, yeah, it, it comes back to the like the curing process as well, making sure it has been cured properly is a huge thing. Otherwise, you just end up with spots that taste like roast pork and... Yeah, it's the the whole process is is obviously very important, but there's little things that need to be done right, which are quite simple. But if they're not done right, it's um it can be a, a major upset when you do go to serve them. You mentioned that you changed the butchery quite significantly, um, but you know, in in a slow manner, you didn't introduce charcuterie straight away. But what, what's the response been to to this sort of high level offering that you're providing the community there? Uh, it's been fantastic. We've been very fortunate to have uh, some very loyal customers who completely understand what we're trying to do. Um, fortunate enough to be close enough to the wineries to get, you know, a lot of the the support from all the local wineries and stuff uh, who send their customers, you know, to check us out when when they're looking for for things. Um, also, the accommodation places in in the valley. Um, a lot of them send you know, customers our way when they're looking for barbecue stuff. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the response has been fantastic. We've just undergone uh, a major renovation in the shop. So it's 
um, just reopened last week. Uh, so it's looking looking very, very, very different to what it used to. But um, as I said, it, it's a heritage building, so it sort of had to remain somewhat the same. But, um, yeah, we've been fortunate enough to do some quite major works and sort of expand our, our operation and offering. What sort of benefits have there been from you know, coming from a career as a chef and moving into butchery, do, do you see the role in a different light, do you think, than someone who's just been a butcher all their life? Uh, I would say yes, um, definitely. Uh, some butchers might not agree, but uh, <laughs> I think you, you have sort of, I mean, you've seen it on the other side. So, I mean, a lot of butchers that have spent their time working in a, you know, a country, country you know, little town butcher shop they've only seen sort of you know your butcher sausages and you know your crumb stuff your old school kievs and all that sort of stuff that everybody loves but um you know it's they they haven't really seen it a lot the thing that i noticed was a lot of people you know that they hadn't even seen wagyu and and stuff like that so that there was a huge sort of hole in the market i guess up here for that sort of stuff but i mean it's not really a hole in the market anymore but yeah, there wasn't really that understanding of it um, as, as what chefs and that in the industry have. Um, and being so close to the wineries, it's just sort of seemed strange that you could sort of drive, drive 10 minutes up the road and be served a two-hat meal and then come 10 minutes back this way and you the best thing you've got is a piece of crumb chicken or something. So not that there's anything wrong with a piece of crumb chicken, but it, it's, you know, these are two different worlds. So I think for me personally, having seen that side of it and and having cooked it um has certainly helped the shop grow definitely the hours of a chef are very different to that of a butcher how much has this sort of career shift changed for you um personally um yeah i mean the hours are certainly a lot better um there's not not so many you know 75 80 hour weeks and stuff anymore but being the being the owner there sort of is a lot lot of hours still involved but you know i've got a young family now and i guess when i was in kitchens and and looking for the next step a lot of a lot of my brain was saying you know this isn't something you can do for the rest of your life you're gonna have kids soon hopefully and and you're gonna have to look for for something different and i've always sort of had the idea that hopefully one day I could get into something with charcuterie or something like that. So having this sort of fall upon itself has just been amazing pretty much. You've created um, one of the best butchers in Australia. What do you love about what you do? Um, I really love, well, obviously being able to still be involved in that food industry. Um, so we do a lot of wholesaling to, to restaurants. So I guess I sort of get to see the, the better side of, of that industry for uh, not that there's always negative sides, but I don't, I'm not there for the, the hard yakker anymore in their businesses. I, I get to see the good side of restaurants, go and eat at restaurants a lot more. Um, yeah. So that's sort of been a, a great thing, but I love also, you know, we've got some, some young apprentices and stuff here that they, you know, they barely knew what chicken was when they started here and to see them now, you know, smoking bacons and tying hams and, and doing all that sort of stuff is pretty satisfying. To, you know, you've you've helped shape people's careers, and and being able to bring you know things that I've been taught in my in the restaurant career into into a butcher shop and teach that to to butchers that are 
been 20, 30 years in the industry and haven't seen that. And then, you know, when they appreciate that, it's, it's, it's really, you know, satisfying. So that's been a great thing. Well, Michael, it's incredible what you've created there and what you're and what you're educating the next generation with as well. We've loved having you on the Crackling today to hear a bit of your story. Um, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Awesome. Thanks very much, Anthony. Cheers. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.